Yeah, your Wi-Fi. Oh, it you does? Will, yeah. Oh, wow. It turns everything on. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think we got Russian hackers. Yes. Oh, it's on now. He got it. Sergio fixed it. Okay, we'll get started then. Thank you, Sergio. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 89. Lamed. 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 <laughs> Intro to Sheriff's Shepherd's Staff. Teach the bind. Our word, O Lord, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Establish the earth, it endures. Your laws endure to this day. For all things serve you. Your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. I will never forget your precepts. By them, you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. Sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection, see a limit. Your commands are bound. All right, good deal. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the chance to come and meet here, and uh, thank you. We have Sergio online to get us going, and um, Lord, uh, just there are quite a few prayer requests this week which have come in and we would ask that you would search our hearts and our minds and know who they are and uh, what those uh, requests involve and that you would respond according to your wisdom and we thank you for the chance to meet here and to open this precious word and to share it and to uh, just lift up your glorious name and uh, help us to always bring it honor and glory and not to uh, bring any shame upon you or to allow people to do so and uh Help us to be strong in our convictions and not to tolerate the nonsense of the world, but to stand firm on the gospel of Christ and on your precious word. Lord, we thank you for it. We uh, commit this hour and a half to you, and we just love you and praise you. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hello, Pat. How are you? Uh, goodness gracious. All right. Well, we're going to get into Romans. Um, yeah, just I'm, my blood is just boiling right now. That's why I said that in my prayer. Asked the Lord to give us a little patience and to stand firm on His Word because we had somebody come in before the class. It was really, really annoying, and uh, it's actually the first time I've ever picked up the gun in the church, getting ready to defend us because uh, you don't know what people are thinking in this the world. Tall yeah. Huh? yeah, tall guy. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I said you better leave right now. I, I, we're not going to take that. How y'all doing today? Hi. Oh boy. Uh, he was just being vulgar. He was just being vulgar. People do that. I mean, you get drunks around here, but he was he was a little exceptional, and uh, I, I said, you've got very short time to get out of here. So anyway, we'll go on. Um, we're in Romans 3.10. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we did move along, didn't we? Yes, we did. <clears throat> okay. Uh, 10. As it is written, there is no righteous, not even one. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that is it. Yeah, that's it. That's, there's none right. What he's doing is he's quoting scripture, so they just take that one verse. And you guys are just in time for the first verse, Romans 3.10. So, Great. How you doing there? Uh, hi, Charlie. Everything okay? Everything's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful weather. Beating the sand. Oh, boy. Okay, well, uh, we have, uh, what's the traffic? Uh, is the parking out there bad? Yeah. I figure because there's so few people in here, and there's pro I saw some cars going around, so I thought totally maybe there were some full. people that what? Totally full. Yep. Oh well, then some people may be uh, coming a little bit later or not at all because yeah, I saw 
a couple cars. cars going around and around and Okay, let's see here. Romans 3.10, I'll read that again because we kind of got off track there. Is, uh, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Anybody know where that comes from without looking? Uh, well, where, where is he <laughs> citing it from? Yeah, Romans 3.10, very good. Um, it's uh, Psalm 14, verse 1, and Psalm 53, verse 1. Okay, that's where it is. Okay, uh, today is the start of a rather long set of quotations selected by Paul directly from the scriptures in order to justify his statements and to prove his case. Okay, he's already said all these things. Um, we'll go back to verse 9 really quickly. What, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. He uses the term Greek indicating the Gentile people, all right? So he's saying all are under sin, and now he's using verses to, uh, to justify this. So, he starts with, as it is written. Okay, if the Old Testament, which is the scriptures of his day, are truly the word of God, and he is now taking it as an axiom that they are by saying it is written, then what they say is absolute truth, and it is binding, and it is guidance, and it is instruction. Okay? doesn't change. We're in the new covenant. We're in the dispensation of grace, but it is still... Um, the Word of God, okay? So the Word of God applies to all people at all times. It just applies differently depending on what the who is being addressed, what the circumstances are. We're not under the Old Covenant. We're under grace. But in other words, he's, he's making these uh, statements, and it is binding. It is guidance. It is instruction, okay? The verses he selects will continue through verse 18. So we've got, what, uh, nine verses that we're going to be going through of things that he's quoting. All right, and it comes from Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, and Isaiah. All right, they will speak of God in verses 10 through 12, first as a judge, and then verses 13 through 15 as an uh, Adaman and anat ana, I can't even say this word anatomist. All right, uh, you know the uh, the one who uh, uh, is taking and the anatomy and he's applying it to a precept within Scripture. I know I didn't get that word out very well. Anatomist. All right, and then um, uh, finally in verses 16 through 18 as an anthropologist, okay? This is a close quote of Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Um, oh, you know what? There is none righteous, no, not one, okay? Let me, it says, um, somebody said Ecclesiastes, and that is correct. Um, I, what I was thinking of in Psalm 14, 1 is the fool says in his heart, there is no God, okay? That, that was what I was thinking of. You're right. This is Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. So um, uh, let's see here. Ecclesi oh, I'm in Ezekiel. Got to get to the other e-book. Um, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, and I'm going the right direction here. Hang on a sec. All right. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, um, it's a very close quote to what he just said. For there's n not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Mm -hmm. And then, as you said, Romans 3.23. So you've got those all tied together. And then, um, uh, from the first man, Adam, there has been none who have not sinned. Okay? That is what he is saying in this particular verse, and that's what he's quoting from Ecclesiastes 7.20. All right? Um, Adam was created as a perfect man, but he lacked the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? He was in a state of innocence. It doesn't negate that he sinned. He was told not to do something. He did it. But he was in the, the uh, 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 dispensation of innocence because he did not yet know the what good and evil were. He had nothing to go by, okay? And because he had nothing to go by, 
he was in a state of innocence. All right? Um, Adam was created as perfect man. He lacked the knowledge of good and evil. This was not a flaw, and this is something that we need to understand because God, people often ask, why did God allow evil into the world? Why did he do this, and why did he do that? And you have to think these things clearly through. Is it a flaw in a person to not have knowledge of something? No. No, not at all. Okay, that's the first thing we need to understand. There was no flaw in how God created Adam. He created him in innocence. He couldn't have created him with the knowledge, with experiential knowledge until he had experienced it, right? So he, he, it is not a flaw, it's merely a lack, okay? Something lacking something else is not necessarily flawed, and we cannot describe his innocence as such, all right? In his innocent state, he was given one command, and it was also one command in the negative. Don't do this thing. It wasn't a positive command. I want you to do this every day at 12 o'clock. It was a negative command. It was nothing. In other words, there was no real restriction on him. He was given full blanket to do anything he wanted. He could do anything he wanted. You know, if he had um, uh, a plant with like a big banana leaf and he wanted to cut it off and put it on his head and run around, you know, there's nothing that says you can't do anything here. Nothing. Any fruit you want, eat it. Anything that you, you want to go swimming or whatever. He was given no prohibition except one. It was one negative command. And that's important to understand. Okay? In his innocent state, he was given that one command. But exercising the free will was but exercising the free will was given. He chose to disobey this command. He was given free will, unlike the animals, which don't really have, they're not sentient beings. They can do what they want, but it's not really considered free will because they don't have any understanding of what they're doing, all right? So by exercising his free will against the one negative command of God, it became fault, all right? He was not in a state of fault, despite not having the knowledge of good and evil, but when he disobeyed God, he went into a state of fault, okay? We would call that sin. That's exactly right. We would call it sin. It's the big the big word. It's the big one. Hello, how are you? From this one man's sin, sin entered the world at large, okay? But it also entered into the stream of humanity as well. Sin travels through the man to the next generation, and therefore we are born in sin. This is something that people have to understand. If you want to understand what's going on in the Bible, you have to grasp that precept. Sin travels through the father. Every person on the planet has both a father and a mother, and therefore every person on the planet inherited Adam's sin. Nobody is exempt from that. Not from the moment of conception, they are in sin. Okay? It is inherited sin from Adam. It's a perfect example. I think I might have given it before here. You may or may not have voted for Donald Trump. But you are under Donald Trump. There's nothing you can do about it. These signs that say, not my president, and people acting like that. Hey, you know what? He is your president, whether you like it or not. Every person in America is under the federal authority of their federal head, who is, in this case, Donald Trump. Unfortunately, we had a different president for eight years, and we were all under his authority. That's just the way it is. It is reality, okay? It's not a perfect example, but it's a very good example because we're a federal government, okay? So you understand that. We, we are under him, sin entered through him, and because of that, we inherited that as well. Sin transfers through man to the next generation, and therefore all are in sin. And David understood this as he penned the 51st Psalm, which says, and I think I said this a week or two ago, but you can never say it enough, because people need to understand what's going on 
for Paul to make his case and to say these absolutes, there has to be a reason why it's absolute. Psalm 51, I'll just start with verse 1 and we'll get down to where we need to be in a, a couple verses. Have mercy on me, upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Well, let me read the, the title to the psalm so you know David's where he's coming from. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. He'd been confronted with his sin. He tried to hide it. He tried to, you know, take care of the problem, and he couldn't. God knew. And so he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be just, found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And here he is. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He understood the fallen nature of man. And for those who don't know this, and probably most of you do, but if you don't, the sign, and I may talk about it later, and if I do, it's just going to be repetition, but the sign of circumcision is a picture of that sin, okay? When God told Abraham to circumcise the, you know, the male, you know, the, the, the organ. organ, thank you, when he told him to do that, then that was giving us a picture of the coming Christ. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus in one way or another. He said, I want you to cut this. It's a picture. It doesn't actually do it, but it's a picture of cutting away sin. I have declared you righteous from you. I am going to have the covenant line of people. You will be circumcised in your flesh. And the reason why is you're picturing the coming Christ. And when uh, uh, Mary came, she is of the line of, uh, of Israel from Abraham. She is a female. She has a, a male father and a... Uh, uh, mother, okay, so she has inherited her male father's sin, but she is a receptacle. That's all she is for the coming Christ. She, he will bear her humanity, but he will bear his father's sinless state because the sin line is cut in what happens in her womb. He has no human father and therefore no sin transfers to him. And that's what the picture of circumcision is. It doesn't actually cut the sin. It simply cuts, it's a picture of cutting the sin, which is effected in Jesus Christ, who was without a human father. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on there. But David understood that everybody is bound under sin. And Paul is using these words from the Old Testament to demonstrate this to us. It is all-encompassing. There's no person, not the Dalai Lama, who, you know, they say he's the regeneration of this, this person that's been going on and on. He's not sinless. No person, the emperor of Japan, is not sinless. He is not a god. We are all humans. We will all, we were born in sin. We will die in sin without Jesus Christ, E-O-S. That's all there is to it. Did you have a question you had? No, okay. Um, so, um, the NIV clearly translates Psalm 51, verse 5. It says, surely I was sinful at birth, okay? All people are born into sin, and therefore there is none righteous, no, not one, okay? But, this is not just a philosophical concept of Solomon, which is repeated by Paul. Rather, it is a truth borne out in the historical record of the Bible as well. In Genesis chapter 4, this truth is highlighted several times. Okay, does anybody know why it's highlighted in Genesis chapter 4, story of Cain and Abel? Okay, I'll explain it then. Um, uh, where is it? Several times. In verses 3 through 5, offerings are bought, brought to the Lord. 
we'll go back or we'll just read this and then I want you to understand this um, from the text before I explain what's going on. We go to Genesis chapter 4. Now, they were just, just expelled from the garden, right? We'll go back to 3 and we'll read the end of it. It says, Cain and Abel aren't even in the picture yet, right? It says, um, so he drove the man out, drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? That's the end of the, the story of Adam and Eve, and now they're outside of the uh, garden. And the first thing that comes up is all of a sudden the conception of Cain and Abel. Here's what it says. Now Adam knew his wife, uh, Eve his wife, and she bore and conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time her brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. We don't know anything about Cain and Abel except that so far, right? And then in verse 3, we, we get this. It says, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. That's the first thing that's introduced about these two boys in Scripture. It's the first thing really of any consequence outside of the fall itself. Is well, the reason why people, uh, there are a lot of debates on why he respected um, uh, Abel's offering and not Cain's, and it comes down to one answer and one answer alone, but I will tell you some of the, the theories. One of the theories is that it's because he offered a blood sacrifice. That is incorrect, okay? The word here used here is mincha, okay? In the book of Leviticus, and a mincha can include a grain offering. It can and does. Grain offerings are acceptable to the Lord. They will say that because Cain took the best of his flock, and it doesn't say that about um, Abel's offering. That is implicitly true of why, if you understand what is explicitly stated later in Scripture, which is in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abel offered a better offering than his brother. Faith. He had faith in what he was doing. Cain didn't. That is the answer, and that is the only answer. The Bible answers it for us, so we don't need to go to blood offerings. We don't need to go to, um, uh, you know, any other thing. But, it but, was but that's, faith. That's in the New Testament. That's right, but it explains right, it. But not to the Jew. Well, it does explain it to them by saying that there there is a reason why it didn't happen. Right. Okay, and the rest of the Old Testament will bear this out. They may not know it right away. But they will know it as they go through the Old Testament. And it's true. You know, why is that in there? And they may not have known it at that time. But later on, you're going to see as the, the line develops, and then you get, um, uh, you know, Genesis chapter 5 and the line of um, uh, Adam. And what does it say? Um, uh, uh, Enoch uh, was 365 years, and he was no more because um, he walked with God, and he was no more because God took him. And something has to be engaging these stories. Something has, and there is a common thread which eventually you will figure out very quickly. Okay? Um, and you have to remember now, by the time that you get to the actual written story, it's not until the time of Moses. Okay? So the people between the written story and the time of Moses had the stories, they had the knowledge, but it wasn't recorded. It was probably passed down by mouth or it was passed some other way, but it was not actually recorded until the time of Moses. Once Moses started recording these things, faith, and we've seen this in a million sermons, faith is understood in there. I mean, uh, you get to the story of Abraham, which is recorded in the books of Moses, and it says, you know, Abraham believed God, and it was uh, reckoned to him as right righteousness. So we, you can go back and you can look at these other things, and you can say, I understand that, okay? 
What you have to remember is that everything in the books of Moses was recorded during a very short period of time. Even though it, the book of Genesis spans, you know, uh, almost 2,000 years of human history, it wasn't recorded until that time. And so, but yes, you are right about that. The Jews, however, by the time that that was compiled in the, the books of Moses, should have understood that faith is what did it. The New Testament does explicitly state, state it, but that gives us the answer. It is faith, okay? It's not anything else. And if you read these long-winded commentaries about it being the blood and all that, it, it really has nothing to do with it. It sounds good, and you can say, well, gee, that points to the Messiah all the way through, and the blood of the sacrifices points to the Messiah. But guess what? When we get into Leviticus, the uh, Leviticus chapter 2 is the grain offering. Okay, you start with the burnt offering, you get to the grain offering, and then you get to the, um, uh, and I typed it last week and I can't remember, um, the third chapter is um, the, uh, um, oh yeah, the peace offering, okay? The grain offering points to Christ too. You're going to see that when we get to Leviticus chapter 2 sermon. Every detail that points to Jesus. So, in the end, it all comes down to faith, always. Um, okay, so um, where was I? Um, the, uh, in verses 3 through 5, offerings are brought to the Lord and yet there is no record of Cain or Abel having committed any sin. Okay, do you understand that now? I read you the passage, and it just gives you this little story. Something is going on here. But there's no record of any sin having been committed. So why did they need an offering? And this is what the Jews should have done when they're reading Moses' words. They should have said, well, you know, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and all of a sudden they're bringing offerings, and this is what we should all do, not just the Jews, but, you know, you're saying that, they don't have the New Testament. We should all, when we get to the Bible, say, well, why does it say? This is the first thing ever introduced about Cain and Abel, is that they're bringing an offering. Why would they do that? That tells you right there that there is a disconnect between God and man, and you must come to God with an offering, okay? Which implies, if you have to come to God with an offering, that implies what? You've sinned. That you've sinned. That's right. The disconnect is from something. It's from sin. And you go right back to your father, your first father, Adam. Okay? So this is what the Bible is telling us, and it's asking us to look at these things and to think on why it is the way that it is. Okay? Now, it might seem all of a sudden, oh, yeah, now I understand that. And it might seem I never would have gotten that. But if you think on it, when you're reading these and you ask the Bible these questions, it will dawn on you. It's just, you know, it, it, sometimes we read the Bible like we're reading a book of uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe or something. It's a narrative and you're finding fun in it and you're, you're finding something. Why ask questions? Because it's telling you something. And so you think, well, that's just interesting and you move on. But if you stop and you say, why? And that's what we should be doing. Why? Then you will start to say, because the Lord put this in here for a reason. He's asking us to process it. And if we just say, well, how does this affect me? How does this affect me as a person, this story of Cain and Abel, there's something about it that I, and just keep asking, and eventually it will dawn on you, okay? And I have to tell you, when we get to Jonah chapter 4, I had to do that through the entire chapter, and as I was telling to Burke, he said that he's doing a devotional next Tuesday on Psalm chapter 8, and he says, I, I, I keep adding to it. I started out this long, and I'm this long. Well, I can't wait to get it in the email and read it, but I've done that with the book of Jonah chapter 4 now. I had um two sermons in there, one through four and then five through the end of the chapter. And the second half of the chapter started out about 21 pages or so, and I finished it and I put it aside. And I've been working on every single night I read the ch chapter four of the book of Jonah and I go to bed and I think about it. And then I get up and I'm up to 28 pages now. So I'm going to have to cut the prophecy <laughs> update short that week because it's, it's you know, that's 
uh, seven pages longer than normal maybe, and so it's gonna, it's gonna get long. But that's because I'm going to bed and I'm asking why, why? And every time I do, something else comes out. It, it, it is very, very exciting what's in the, the last chapter of Jonah to me. And I, you know, when we get there, I hope you'll enjoy it, but it is very, very exciting to me. I, I can tell you that. It is, it's a marvelous, marvelous thing that's being uh, pictured there. But anyway, um, um, in verses 3 through 5, I'll re- read that again. Offerings are brought to the Lord, and yet there's no record of them having committed any sin. Okay, the Bible therefore implies that because no demonstrable sin was committed, they had inherited their father's fallen state. Okay, that's what it implies. If, if they're bringing an offering and the Lord didn't give us any other information, he didn't say, you know, Abel did something wrong and so he had to bring in, doesn't do it. It simply says they brought it. That means that he's trying to tell us there was already a disconnect in there. Okay, this concept continues to be bore out in Cain's murder of Abel and on through the Old Testament. Now, we can assume, we can't make the logical and firm conclusion that um, uh, Cain was the first person ever born, but he was the first person ever recorded as being born, okay? And Abel, we can assume, is the second person being born. But there are women there somewhere, right? Cain went out and got himself a wife, right? And then in Genesis chapter 5, it says, and Adam had other sons and daughters, blah, 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 right? So he's got his eyes fixed on a certain line of people all the way through the Bible. And there could have been people born before Cain. There could have been many, many, many sons and daughters born after Cain, or he could have been the first person. All he is concerned about in this story is Cain and Abel, okay? So we will naturally say that the first person ever born, at least recorded, was a murderer, okay? Now, he may not have been the first person born, but the Bible gives that hint that he is. And but that it also substantiates the fact that we're all born with sin. That's exactly right. So that sin is in us, and it's all the way back at the, the beginning. Mass. And it's not just sin, it's horrifying sin, because he killed his brother. It's, it, we have it in us, and it, it also tells us that we are all capable of doing that, okay? People fly off the handle all the time, and they do something crazy. Even the most calm, cool person you'll ever meet can have his button buttons pushed to a certain point, and they can fly off the handle. And this is what the Bible is trying to show us, is that this is in us, and it is an infection. And what did the Lord say to Abel after, or Cain, after he killed his brother? Where is your brother? Oh, yeah. He says, well, first, before he killed him, he said, sin is crouching at your door, but you must, you know, get a hold of it, basically. I know that's a misquote. And then he went out and killed him anyway, right? But he was, he was despondent. He says, why are you despondent? So he's telling him that sin is there. It is crouching at the door. And all of these little hints in this first chapter after the fall are showing us this that Paul is now analyzing in Romans chapter 3. Okay? Sin is in us. It is something that is creeping inside of us. It wants to control us, but we must master it. Let me read that. So I don't, I don't want to misquote the thing and leave your, your brain with my misquotes. So let me just read you what he says there. Um, he says, um, chapter 4, he says, um, uh, brought the door and he says, uh, he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry about and his countenance. So the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will not will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And then after he killed his brother, what you said. So that, I was thinking of that verse before he killed his brother. It is, if it's in Cain, it is in all of us. 
I mean, think, he's right back at the very beginning, and it's already in him. How much more is it? And, uh, you know, they, we talk about uh, Genesis chapter 6, and wickedness was on the face of the earth, and the Lord says, I'm going to destroy the earth, right? And he, he uh, calls one man, um, uh, Noah, and he says, I'm going to do something here, right? He's got to destroy the earth because of the wickedness, and people were living how long? 900 years and, you know, 600 years and 700 years. And imagine the amount of wickedness that was going on in the earth with people living that long when we have people like Adolf Hitler that were only in their late 40s before he really started doing what he did and he only lived to 54 or something. He wasn't that old, right? Yeah, and so you think of the wickedness that we can develop in such a short amount of time. And as we get wicked, we've seen it in the world in the past 10 years, as we get wicked, it gets geometrically worse. It doesn't get better. So, yes. It's interesting that Cain not only committed the act of killing his brother, right. but he actually had enough boldness in his sin to have a relationship of communicating with the Lord. And when the Lord said, where's your brain? He says, yeah. I'm not my brother's keeper. Am right. I not my brother's keeper? I mean, he actually lied to the very God that he knew. Created his dad. Created the earth and had supernatural power to know the truth. Yeah. But he boldly lied to the Lord. And what does that tell you about us? It's exponentially. That was huge. It, it is huge. It, it, to think that you can do that is it, it, it's astonishing. But, and you know, we do it all the time. Have a relationship of communicating with the Lord. That was a very yeah. special, unique, and he just boldly, boldly, boldly lied that. about it. But think about it from our perspective now. Every one of us here, I would assume, is called on Jesus and is saved. And when we do something wrong, we try to hide it from the Lord. We know we can't, and we talk to the Lord, and we pray to him, and, and have we acknowledged to him when we're praying about something else that we did this thing? You know what I mean? Right. I, it, it just it, We're boldly trying to hide something, just like David did. David tried to hide his sin, and he was found out, and he realized, well, I can't hide anything from the Lord. And we do it, we repeat the same thing all the time. I'm just going to do this one little thing over here, and the Lord isn't going to know. It just it, It's in us. It is an infection in us, and it just eats away and, and think of people that don't know the Lord. And I, 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 I ask myself that every day when I'm typing my devotional. How, how do people get through life without Jesus? I, I, I don't even know. It's just unbelievable. But you're absolutely right. It's just it's, it's, it's a bold sin is a bold infection in us. So, um, Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And Isaiah says the same thing. You, you sin, and that, so the Lord will not hear. Yeah. It brings up a wall between you. It, the Lord will not hear because of the sin that's in you. So um, uh, let's see here. We got um, the, the Bible. I, I already said that. This concept continues to be borne out in his murder of Abel. And yet, from the same early pages of the Bible... All the way through the book of Malachi, there are pictures and promises of one who would come to right the wrong of Adam and thus restore fellowship that was lost so long ago. Genesis chapter 3 gives a picture, and all the way through, all the way through, explicitly, there's probably, I think somebody's counted 354 prophecies of Jesus coming. I might have that number wrong, but it's about 350, okay? Implicitly, in the Genesis and Exodus sermons, we have probably found a thousand or more, every single word is pointing to Christ. And then we got into Ruth for a while. There's probably four or five hundred in Ruth alone. I mean, the whole thing is about him. And then from there, we're, you know, go to Jonah right now, and we've got pictures of Jesus. Chapter 
two of Jonah is all. It's all talking about the cross. You just pick up uh, Psalm 22 and read it and then read um, chapter 2 of Jonah and it's just a, like a perfect mirror of it. Every single word pointing to Jesus. Right? All of it. And then we're going to get into Leviticus and as I said, I've already typed chapters 1 and 2 and 3. Every word. Every word is pointing to Jesus. So implicitly, there are just billions of them if people are willing to look. Okay? So, um, all the way through Malachi, we got these pictures. Somebody who had come to right the wrong. Yes, there is none righteous who is born of man. But Jesus was not born of man. He was born of the Holy Spirit and through a woman. The sin of Adam did not transfer to Christ. That is the picture of circumcision. That is the promise. Right back in Genesis chapter 3, once again, I read this last week, but I'll read it again just so that you remember. Genesis 3.15, it's called, what did did they call Genesis 3.15? The proto... Proto-evangelium, that's right. It's um, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the devil, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? So your seed is fallen man and her seed is Christ. That's because all are in the devil. Everybody's in the devil. 1 John 3, 8 makes that explicit. All right? The reason that the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. Everybody is in the devil until they come to Christ. And that was there was an allowance made for the redemption of Israel, pointing to the Messiah. They were redeemed. But in all, people are either in Adam or they are in Christ. And that's the only two choices that we have. So, having said that, um, he did not inherit the sin debt that Adam owed, as we all did. He did not inherit it. So, little life application, we'll get on to another verse. Are you doing works in order to please God and get you to heaven? Guess what? It won't work. That's right. It ain't going to happen. You have already inherited a problem which works can't fix. How many of you have gone out and told somebody about Jesus and you say, why should God let you into heaven? And what is the first thing that almost every one of them says? I'm a good person. I've done this. I'm not as bad as the next guy. It's always a comparison thing or it's always something that I have done to make God happy. Okay? It ain't going to happen. As I said, I use the example of Bill Gates because all the left is gushy over him. The money that he gives to AIDS research and all that, and he's such a good guy and doesn't mean anything. I mean, that means, as a matter of fact, it's, it's an offense to God because he's trying to work his way with something that has already been offered freely. So it's more of an offense for him to do the things than to just not do anything. Mm-hmm. Just go sit in the corner and, you know, suck on your thumb and you'll be better off with God than you will be by trying to buy your salvation through a means other than Jesus Christ, okay? You have inherited a nature which infinitely separates you from God, but there is a remedy. By faith, put your trust in Jesus and what he did, and he can be your bridge back to a right relationship with his Father. Only then can your works be pleasing to God. That's all there is to it. There is no other way to be reconciled to God except through what Jesus has already done for us. And as I said, the Old Testament saints were looking forward to the Messiah. The New Testament saints are looking back on the Messiah, but the cross is the center of it all. There is no way to get around Jesus Christ to get to God the Father. Is impossible. It's through him or it's not at all. Okay? 3.11, go ahead. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Okay. Real care needs to be taken when evaluating quotes from the New Testament. Okay? Which come from the Old especially. We have to be careful when we evaluate these. 
Anybody can quote anything to come up with whatever conclusion they wish by tearing things out of context. A verse taken out of context is a pretext. pretext. Thank you. It's a lie. Now, um, the, the good example, which most of you have probably heard, but it's nice to be reminded of it, is um, to say, Judas hung himself. Go and do likewise. You just take two verses, you put them together, and you, you can make the Bible say anything. You can make the Bible say absolutely anything if you take things out of context, okay? If somebody something is written in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, it is written in the Old Testament to the Jewish people. When you get to um, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and there's a giant debate between prophecy guys. Is Matthew 24, for example, um, no man knows the day and the hour? Is that speaking of the rapture or is it not speaking of the rapture? And people will argue one side or another and they'll say, well, it has to be speaking of the rapture and they'll give their defense. And then other people will say, no, it's not speaking of the rapture and they give their defense. The answer is that it is not speaking about the rapture. The rapture was an unknown commodity in God's redemptive workings at that time. He was speaking to who? Jews. He was speaking under what dispensation? The law. The Jews under the law. Okay? They had no idea. Now, he could be talking about something that they don't have any idea about, but he was not. He was not talking about something that they had no idea about. And how do we know that? I will tell you how we know that he's not speaking to the Jews. There's a couple ways you can know. First, he is speaking about um, uh, he's speaking about something that Isaiah said. No, I got plenty of rags. Right, right. Don't take off your shirt and do that. I got rags. No, no. Right in the back under the counter, there's um, white rags. And if you need um, spray, just take that. That's fine. Don't worry about it at all. Um, no, 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 no. She dropped something and no problem. Water with ice. Uh, yeah, but she's taking off her, her jacket. Jacket. Don't do that. Just, you know, just, we got plenty of towels back. That's what that's for. But anyway, um, the way that we know that Matthew 24, speaking of the, no day, no man knows of the day and the hour, is not speaking, is because Paul calls the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15 what? A mystery. A mystery is something that is not known until it is revealed. And until it left the ink of Paul's pen, it was a mystery. Nobody knew it. Jesus did not reveal it to any person. He was not speaking about the rapture in Matthew 24. We don't need to go any further than that, but I could go on and on about the context. of You, have, you don't just go two verses to either side and you say, see, this says this and this says this. You've got to go up a, 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 a paragraph on each side in that chapter, and you will very clearly see that it is not speaking about the rapture. But it doesn't matter, because all you need to know is, one, he's speaking to the Jews, and two, he's speaking under the Old Testament dispensation. It had nothing to do with that. Okay, that's, it's very important, because we're going to get into some verses that are so hugely abused that if you don't know why Paul is using this terminology, you're going to start following R.C. Sproul and his idea of election with these verses. And that's why it's important to understand what he's saying to whom he's saying it to. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, anybody can, I said that. Okay, this is the case, taking things out of verses, in, with this verse here, more often than not, the one that we're looking at right now. Paul is citing, this is what I was thinking of, Romans 14, verse 1, and um, I'm sorry, um, Psalm 14, verse 1, and Psalm 53, verse 1. They say exactly the same thing. They are almost a mirror of each other in the first verse. So let me read this to you, just so you know what he's citing. And I was, I was getting ahead of myself when I was um, looking at 
or thinking about these verses because they're so abused. The first one was Ecclesiastes 7. This is now Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Okay, Psalm 53, verse 1 says um, basically the same thing. Okay, David wrote them both. And it says here, let me read it to you just so you know what Paul is citing first. He says, um, 53, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Okay? Basically the same thing. That is what Paul is citing. If taken at face value, and without considering both the context and the rest of Scripture, then one might come to the conclusion that man in his natural state cannot seek God. And that's what R.C. Sproul will tell you. You cannot seek God in your natural state. Okay? Or they'll say something similar to this. He says, nobody seeks after God. It is impossible for you to do it, and the Bible says it. Because that's what it sounds like, and he makes this convincing argument. So we'll go on. This is the standard doctrine of Calvinist teachers. Okay, they say, this is John Calvin's, if you know the tulip, uh, total depravity, uh, unlimited atonement, atonement, um, let's see, T-U-L, limited atonement, atonement, uh, U is... uh, um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll pull it up here later. If somebody wants to look, I can look it up over here. doesn't matter. This is one of the doctrines of the Calvinists, okay? It is, um, and what do they do? Uh, let me find this doctrine as well, especially among those who deny free will in man in accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ. And this is why this is so important, taking this verse in context. Because if you say that nobody can seek after God, then you do not have free will in receiving Jesus Christ. Okay, that is the, that is the end of the Calvinist doctrine is that you cannot voluntarily seek after God. Okay, Jesus, however, says this is wrong. He says it, John three sixteen. Uh, what is it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever is regenerated in order to believe and then believes, it, it doesn't say that. It says if you believe. Okay. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you've given the Holy Spirit. If you b- believe, you receive. What does it say in Romans 10? Um, uh, you know, if you believe on the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And all again and again and again, it says believe, have faith, etc., etc. It never says that you are given that faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 could be taken that way if you mishandled them. But anyway, we're not there yet. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, taking this verse in proper context as Paul would have expected his readers to do because they don't have any other Bible, right? All they have is the Old Testament. He is in the process of writing the New Testament with the other writers, okay? We see the basis for the original statement was made by David in the Psalms. And I just read you Psalm 14, verse 1, right? David had it in mind, and he was speaking of who? Who was David speaking of in the 14th Psalm? The fool so, says in his heart, there is no God. Who is he speaking of? All of us. Gentiles. No. Who is the fool? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Who is he speaking about? More than an unbeliever. The atheist. atheist. There's no God. That's who he's speaking of. Just read the context of the verse. Don't rip it out of context like they do with the Calvinists. And you see that he is speaking about a person a type of person that is unwilling to acknowledge a God. Before we go on, really quickly, I want to do this just so that the people that are listening, because I, I was going to do this later, but I just want you all to know exactly what TULIP to you, you've already got Total it. Depravity, Total depravity, unconditional election, 
That's right. Atonement, yeah. Irresistible grace. That's right. Pressure fair to the same. Okay, total depravity. Un, read it again. Unconditional, Unconditional election. election. That's right. Limited atonement. Limited atonement. That's the one that I want to focus on, okay? Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. You cannot deny God's grace calling you. And? and perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. Limited atonement. That's a Calvinist doctrine that says that um, uh, Jesus Christ's death is limited in its scope only to the elect. Okay? That's what it says. Limited atonement. Is that correct? Is limited atonement correct? Because you've got to be careful. If there is unlimited atonement, then that means everybody goes to heaven, right? Right. But Go ahead. You're not, you're not limiting it to his action. You're limiting it to an action of... That's right. That. that is exactly right. right. And that's it's not Calvinist doctrine, which says that only the elect are saved through Jesus Christ, and therefore Christ's atonement is limited. Christ's atonement is unlimited in... In potentiality, it is limited in actuality, and that's where Calvinist doctrine errs. Is because they say that it is limited only to those who God calls, and then nobody else is saved. So why okay. would any of these Calvinists want to be missionaries? That's exactly right. It, that, it, this is this is coming from a theologian here. Her question is valid. It says, why would anybody be a missionary if you were a Calvinist? Because God has already done the work. He knows who's going to be saved. We don't need to do anything. It's completely contrary to Jesus' words after the resurrection, which means it applies to us in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples. There's no need to do that. Now, a Calvinist will say, well, that's not true because they need to hear from us so that God can irresistibly call them and, and uh, regenerate them in order to believe. That is absolute nonsense. If God has already determined who will be saved, then man cannot thwart his will and they will be saved. So we don't need to have missionaries. It is a false system of understanding. They want to see time and, and everything from God's perspective. Right. It's like God is not going to be faked out if I no, do that's or right. don't come to Jesus. That's right. He will. He knows the end of the book. It's, like, that's yeah, right. it's over. That's why but it, they, they just like don't want to have... It, it's like... Okay, they try to say that it, 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 it glorifies God more by him regenerating a person in order to believe. If you think it through, it doesn't glorify him at all. No. It doesn't glorify him at right. all because he has given us free will to right. accept or but deny I, him. I and, think the Calvinists that I know can't wrap their head around that they don't they can't know as much no, as they, God. They, they can wrap their head <laughs> around it. It's that they have been trained into a theology and they are unwilling, once they are trained, to stop and say, I could be wrong. Right. That's the problem. Is people when they are taught something from the beginning, they have a presupposition, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses, just like anybody. When and that's why I say in this class always, after we finish a class, go home and Check, check, check to make sure that what I said is correct because I am fallible too. But I can absolutely assure you that limited atonement is false. Jesus Christ died for every single person on this planet. They have to choose potentially he died for all people, actually only those who call on him. That's proven by a, a verse like where Peter says that God wants none to perish but all to come to it. It doesn't say anything about being regenerated in order to believe in that verse. He wants everybody to call on Jesus Christ. He gives us the choice not to. Anyway, if, we'll go if, on. If that's the case, then it's not a gift. That's right. It's not a gift. It, but you have to take all of that because they take a few of these verses out of context and they apply them in a in an incorrect way. And so that's why context matters. Once again, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
Who is he speaking about? Atheist. He's speaking about an atheist. Okay, we'll go on from there. Okay, I know that was a little bit long, but I, I get so angry at this people not properly handling the Bible. All the way through, free will is a tenet in the Bible. All the way through. Abraham didn't have to believe God. It doesn't say that God regenerated Abraham in order to believe, and he looked up at the stars and then believed. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything about that with Enoch. As a matter of fact, I emailed a Calvinist doctor of theology about his, I, I read his commentary on, on uh, regeneration, this, these verses that we're looking at right here. And I said, how do you explain Enoch? And here's what he did. He took his entire thesis that I had read and he just cut and pasted it and he sent it to me and he says, well, he just put in Enoch's name. God regenerated him order to believe and he believed and then God took him away because, insane. It's insane. It, you could never get that from reading the Old Testament. It's one of those doctrines that people make up and they insert all of this stuff into the Old Testament in order to justify whatever doctrine they want. It doesn't matter what doctrine they want, they will always, if you have to insert something in there, it's probably not what God is, is asking you to find. He's asking you to ask questions of the text, not insert things into the text. Yeah, he's given okay? us everything we need. Everything right? we need. In this world. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to go on with this now. It says, David had in mind that he was speaking of, as you all got, the atheist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It is an atheist. To make an all-inclusive claim about this verse, as Calvinism does, is to completely tear it out of its original context. As I said, Paul wrote it, but he expects his readers to go back and say, what is the context of what Paul is writing? Because they have the Old Testament scriptures, and all they need to do is be what? Ber begins with the B and ends with Ureans. They have to be Bereans, that's right. And then they go and they check the scriptures to see if what he says is true. And that's what they did. That's what they were highlighted for. The same concept applied to the people in Rome, the same concept applied to the people in Ephesus. Wherever Paul wrote or went, the people were expected to check what he said. And so you don't just take this one little part of this verse and say, this is our doctrine. You have to go back and say, what was Paul referring to? Okay, so here we go. Um, we could question, are Muslims seeking after God? Not one we know. I didn't ask that. <laughs> are Muslims seeking after God? No. I didn't ask that. Are Muslims seeking after God? Well, they probably are, but they're... There you go. That's the answer I wanted. They are seeking after God. They are not doing it correctly. Are Jehovah's Witnesses seeking after God? I think they are. Absolutely. They're not doing it correctly. Are, are Mormons seeking after God? They are not doing it correctly. I'm not talking about the true God or the false God or anything like that. I'm simply asking, are these people seeking after God? They spend their whole life, they go out and blow themselves up because they are really think they are pleasing God by doing it. The question is, are they seeking after God? Okay? David is saying, the fool says in his heart there is no God. No God. Did David say anything about Muslims going after the wrong God? No. He said, no God. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Paul and Athens. Right. Yes, perfect example. Religious, they had a scope, uh, a to the unknown God. God was seeking them through Paul. Right. They weren't seeking him, but he was I'm not them. talking about any God. No, I'm just Be saying that... That's right. That, oh, that's right. God was seeking through Paul's message to them, though. He was seeking them. That's right. But the they knew that there was an unknown God, and that's what he used was that to make his entire case to them. But they were seeking after God. They just weren't doing it correctly. Okay? And right. that is what he... The God that you... Let's read that. 
Let's read that. It says in Acts chapter 17, he says, uh, where is that? To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, they are seeking after God. Right? I, him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and blah, blah, blah. And then what does he do? He goes and he cites their own philosophers, their own philosophers to justify, and those are used in Scripture, and he applies them to the true God. They are seeking after God. They're not atheists. They're people that have it wrong. Go ahead. I always think what they say is we're all created to worship. That's right. We will worship something. Something. The question is, will we seek in a way that we can really discover who God is? Who the true God is. is. And that's, that right. is not who Paul is speaking about. He's speaking about the atheists. You're right. right. That's, so that's what we have to get that out of the way before we make any more understanding what's going on in the book of Romans. Because if we stopped right there and we said, this is an all-inclusive statement, as Calvinists do, you might as well just close the book because we don't need this in order to be regenerated, in order to believe. God, his will can't be thwarted, right? right? He wants me, so why do I need to read the Bible? Why do I need to do anything in theology if he is going to save me apart from my will and apart from my seeking him? It doesn't need to happen. Free will is a precept on both sides of the coin. We freely choose to reject God. We freely choose to come to God. I'll, I'll take you to a verse that he will use. We'll get into this. I'll probably repeat it at some time in the next couple of verses. But he says that um, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? That's Paul in the Ephesians, okay? He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's how R.C. Sproul explains that. He says, can a dead person acknowledge God no he's dead okay what 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 is the category mistake that he's made there well he's applying what is a picture of death meaning their soul is dead it's yeah he, they're physically dead physical and spiritual death right. he is applying one category to the other he's making an all-inclusive statement and he's saying dead is dead a rock can't call on God right or a dead frog can't call on God it's dead you're no different than that rock or that dead frog that is a complete category mistake because we are human beings, we are rational, we are cognitive, and we have the will to choose. We can all change until we die. And have That's exactly right. So he is, he is making this subtle category change, and people don't pick up on that. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are not dead beings. And then uh, we'll go on, and then we'll, we'll get all of these questions answered by the time we're done with the New Testament, okay? So... Um, uh, I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but you see what happens when people take one concept and they apply it to another. You can't do that. Okay, David, I'm going to read this again. David had in his mind that he was speaking of the atheist. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. Mm -hmm. To make an all-inclusive claim about this, as Calvinism does, is to completely tear it out of his original context. I asked you the question, are Muslims seeking God? I got a lot of no's until you thought it through, and then I got a yes. Are Mormons seeking after God? Yes. Are Buddhists seeking after God? Yes. All over the world, people are seeking after God. There are a billion religions. I've been in Malaysia, I've been in Japan, and I can assure you those people are seeking after God. They just are seeking after the wrong God, or they're seeking after him incorrectly. Okay? Every single case, the answer is yes. They're just doing it wrong. Further, if Calvinism were true, and this were an all-inclusive statement, Anybody? If Calvinism were true, and this were an all-inclusive statement, 
would it would mean life is all predetermined. There's no real hope. Take it back to the simple. What is David doing when he's writing this letter, or the psalm? David with the psalm. Okay, uh, he's just saying how broken he is from what he. No, 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 no. That was Psalm 51. He's writing about these people. They're separated from God. No, no. Think it through. Let me read this again. If Galvanism were true, and this is an all-inclusive statement, then David could not have written the statement. Right, because he's seeking after God and he's speaking about somebody else. Do you see it? Do you see that? If it's all-inclusive, then David could not have written the words. But he did write the words, and so he knows that he is seeking after the true God properly. He's not an atheist. He's not a Moabite who's worshiping Molech or whatever. He's a Jew seeking after the true God. He could not have written that statement if he wasn't seeking after God. Okay, impossible. But he still has sin in him, as you, one of you just said, this fifty-first right. Psalm. Right. So he is seeking after God, and he is a sinful man. Okay. So we got to get our boxes right on this. David could not have even written the psalm because none would include him. It, and that's what Calvinism fails to take into consideration. It's, there is an author to this that was not God in the human sense. It was God from his perspective, but it was David in the human sense. And he wrote these words under the influence of the Spirit, but he still wrote these words. None does not include David, and therefore it cannot be an all-encompassing statement. Such a conclusion is entirely unsupportable by all of the rest of the scripture as well. All the rest of the scripture. Enoch, I talked about him earlier, we'll go through him again. He was recorded in Genesis chapter 5, walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Ruth, a young girl from the pagan nation of Moab, refused to be separated from her mother-in-law. What was the reason? Ruth 1.16, let me read it to you so you know. Because your, your the rest people is my people, your God will be my people. That's right. Let me just read the whole thing. But thank you. That's exactly right here. We've got uh, Ruth. We're going to go back so that we have the entire context of what happened with Joshua Judges Ruth, Samuel uh, Judges Ruth. Okay, we're getting there. Um, all right, Ruth. Once That's exactly right, though. That was the, the verses I was looking for. It says in verse 15, and she said, look. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then she calls on the name of the covenant-keeping God, the Lord, Jehovah. The Jehovah, do so to me and more, if anything but death parts you and me. She was seeking after the true God that she had met through her family. Okay? It's not an all-inclusive statement. Speaking of a time yet future, Hosea prophesied that the Israelites who had long rejected God, it's yet future to us now, okay, will search him out in the latter days. It says there in Hosea 3.5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. They will seek the Lord. This cannot be an all-encompassing statement. It does not say that these people will be regenerated uh, in order to believe. They will come to realize that Christ is their Messiah, and they will call on him in the name of the Lord, and they will be saved. Okay? It, it, it is such a fouled system. Fouled. What's the word I want? Such a flawed. Thank you, Charlie. It's such a flawed system. <laughs> that Calvinism puts forth because they, they introduce something, they tell people that it's this way, and people don't check it. And it has been 
passed on and passed on and passed on to the point where people don't even bother with it anymore. They hear it and they just but simply don't you accept think it. it makes them feel like they're elevated a Oh, exactly. That's exactly. Yes, but Talk to a Calvinist know. and you will feel this small next to him yeah. because yeah. they are really elevated. Yeah. I'm one of the well, regenerate. Yeah. That's right. And then they'll say, well, you How do you know? But wait a minute. Exactly. <laughs> how do you know? But that's how the Jews felt. Well, that's right. And it, 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 what it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a source of pride if you think it through. It is. They will say that free will is pride in man, and yeah, that I've is not that. true. I've heard, that I've heard that many times from Calvinists, and yet it's just the exact opposite. Okay, what is it that what is it that makes us, if we have free will, and we can't choose what is good, according to them? They say there's you have no ability to choose what is good. Okay, they use these verses. All right, what do we see? Is there anything good in you or me before we come to Christ? Because they'll say there's nothing good in you. You're dead and you can't choose God. Just because we don't have good in us does not mean that we cannot see the good in God. And anybody, even the worst person in the world, can see something good and say, I want that. And that's the problem. They keep making these, as you said, they will say something and then they will twist it to the point where you think, well, how do I get around that? When all you do is just keep taking it back to Christ. That's why God offered Christ, is because he is good and we are not dead. We may be dead spiritually, but we are not physically. We are rational. We can say, I want what he offers. That is the difference, okay? We have to understand this, because if not, then this entire passage of Romans will go to the wayside, and it will be something that it, it, it no longer has any bearing to us at all. We might as well not even read it. Yes. Isn't that what really makes this wonderful covenant so exciting? That's right. So exciting is no matter how badly somebody sinned, no matter how far away, there is right. always hope that they can turn and be saved. And be saved. It doesn't matter how low you are, because sure. if people knew me before coming to Christ, they they would say, God and can save what anybody. It should cause us to do is recognize that we're no better than anybody else and that they, you know, you can't look down on them because we were once like that. And That's right. There's there's no superiority right. in it. Now there's we no, get that way because we get trained and we, we get theology and we start looking at people differently and that is natural. Right. But if we think about where we were, it, it becomes unnatural again and we can go back and we can say, I, I was in that position mm -hmm. and therefore I can't judge this person. And the best way to keep above that, I am telling you the absolute way to the best way to keep above that is to do what Jim and I do every single Saturday, is to go down to where people are really low and it reminds right. you of where you were, okay? Anyway, Charlie, let's go on. Yes? Just say one thing, this picture that I have on, on my bedside table that my grandmother had, I didn't really understand it. It's A lot of people have seen it as Jesus at the door. Knob, oh, yeah. But you have to understand. No doorknob. No doorknob. That's right. No doorknob on the door. We have to open have it for him. And what does it say? That's exactly what it says in the right. book of Revelation. And I skipped Tom because he was hiding back there. But Tom on Saturday as well. Tom I'm just is. looking at Jim. And so, oh, and Rick. Rick's back there. He's hiding back there. So we got four of us that are down there every Saturday. Anyway, um, yeah, but read that Read that first right in the book of Revelation. If he opens the door, I will come into him and yes. suck with him. He will dine with me. Right? It is always free will. Let's go on. Um, all right. Let's see here. I, I read you the verse from Hosea. Those who seek after God from both within the covenant people of Israel and those from without are noted time and time and time again in Scripture. Therefore, that this verse today is not all-inclusive is as evident as water is wet. That's all there is to it. You can tell that water is wet. Well, you can tell that free will is in man and we must choose the good in God, even if there's no good in us. 
Okay, so the Calvinist doctrine is incorrect. I don't, I, I, I don't understand how somebody can read these verses and take them out of context and then be shown the proper context and still not be willing to say I was wrong. But that's what happens when you when pride steps in and you say, I know I'm right. I know that God regenerated me and I had no choice in it. And they go through this long theological argument and it is not true. Okay. Anyway, having determined this, we can acknowledge that there is none who understands God in the fullest sense. If they did, if somebody understood God in the fullest sense, then they would be God. That's exactly right. Important to understand that. If they did, they would be God because only God who is infinite can fully know himself. It is also true that without his special revelation to us, there is none who seeks after God perfectly. Okay, But as I've already shown, there are people all over the world seeking after God. They're just not doing it right. Okay, To perfectly seek after God would imply a perfect knowledge of how to do so. But in his wisdom, God sent us Jesus to reveal the Father in a way which we can understand. When we look to Jesus, we see the Father. That's in John 14, verse 7. Okay, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's why God sent Christ, is so that we can understand God in the fullest sense possible. Is because he is God in human form. He is the God-man, okay? All right, by showing us who the Father is, we now have the ability to properly pursue God and to accurately understand him as he continuously and ceaselessly is revealed by the Son. It will be an eternal adventure for us if we are willing to start the trip. Jesus offers any to come to him, and when they do, the journey begins. It is not forced on us, nor are we first regenerated in order to accept the offer that those who deny free will must claim. Rather, we are given the free will to choose and the mental faculties to make the choice. That's the end of that story, okay? If you disagree with me, you're just going to have to disagree with me. I'm not talking to anybody here. I'm talking to the people online that may, because once in a while I get an email from a Calvinist, and they'll tear me apart, and they'll say, blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. I, I, you are wrong. You have taken this verse, and you have pulled it out of its intended con context, because David couldn't have read it, or written it. He couldn't have said those words. Ruth couldn't have clung on to what's her name and says, I'm going to follow after the Lord of Naomi. And all of these other people that I said, it's evident in Scripture that they voluntarily, freely choose to pursue the true God in the way that he has revealed himself. Life application. The fact that God already knows what we will choose, and this is one of them that, that yeah. Calvinists argue yeah. against, it no way negates our responsibility to choose him. Just because he knows that we're going to choose doesn't mean he knows what I'm going to do 20 minutes from now. He knows what I'm going to do 100 years from now. It doesn't mean that I don't have this life to live. He knows the choices I'm going to make. That's why I said in the, the Jonah sermon either last week or two weeks ago, the suicide option does not work. We can put a gun to our head and say, see, I'm going to beat God at his own game. He knew what you were going to do. The only person that's suffering in the suicide option is you. He already knew that you were going to do it. And if you pull the gun away and say, I'm not going to do it, he knew you would do that too. But it does not negate you making that choice. Okay, Free will is not negated by God's omnipotence. And they cannot understand that because that's been trained out of them. Our free will is not negated just because God knows what our free will choice will be. Okay, R.C. Sproul. Here, I'm going to give you the opposite example now so you understand. And I've given this before, but it's good to remember these things. He said... 
he was playing tennis, okay? And he, he remembers the moment he had his big epiphany. He's playing tennis, and he says, if, um, uh, if intent is sin, because we know it is, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, then, um, uh, then um, uh, you've already committed adultery with the woman, right? Okay, if intent is sin, then Adam fell before the fall. He says, I suddenly realized that when I was about to hit the ball. Adam fell before the fall because he intended to sin before he actually did it. Oh, my God. Okay? Wait a second. Isn't intention free will? Well, that's right. And he says, but he denies that. And so he says, this is his question. Because he denies free will, the next question out of his mouth was, whence comes sin? And he's stuck with this dilemma because he does not believe in free will. What does it say Right on that page of the Bible. It's, you conceive it and then when... No, no, no. Genesis chapter 3. What does it say? The man does not have the knowledge of good and evil. And after he sinned, it says he has the knowledge of good and evil. You can't have sin for thinking something when you're told not to do it until you actually do it. He doesn't understand the consequences of his sin. But he freely chose to do what he did. But he will not believe that you have free will in order to make these choices. And so he is left with the final question, whence comes evil? And he can't answer that because he doesn't believe in free will. Yeah, but, but Okay, so you, you, you build a house, it falls over, you go, what did I do wrong? Right. You've got to start with the foundation. Why That's right. you go back and like say, okay. Because play, he's been trained just... under Calvinist doctrine. He, it's just like the guy you argue with all the time. They will not go back and look at the foundation. They will not do it. Because they have this trained into them, that's what they believe. And that is the problem with coming to a Bible class or to a church or anywhere else with presuppositions. Mm -hmm. Once you have a presupposition and you say, there is no other option except what I've been taught, which the Jehovah's Witnesses are classics in it, mm -hmm. they will never come out of the box that they're in. Now, I'm sitting here and I'm telling you that we have free will, and that's my presupposition, right? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I'm wrong, because that's my presupposition, but I am absolutely certain that the Bible bears out that we do have free will, okay? Whereas the opposite is not true. And so my presupposition is valid. His is invalid, okay? Adam, Adam, Adam chose to do what he did. That's right. Okay, let's go on. Verse 312, go ahead. Uh, okay, but before I do, will I still be able to play come... Uh, what, don't pass me not, oh great uh, gentle savior on oh, Sundays. Oh yes, absolutely. Pass me. Well, you know, if you if you listen to the words, it does sound like he's yeah. asking that, but I don't think that's the context. So we can still play. It's a good song. All right, good. Anyway, we got we got uh, 15 minutes, and we're going to try to get all verse 12 done. Okay. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not no, not one. one. Okay, let me read that again. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable instead of worthless. There is none who does good, no, not one. Close, close translation. Okay, this verse is taken from Psalm 14, verse 1, and Psalm 53, verse 1, okay? It's to be taken in a general sense, a general sense. Not absolute, it's in a general sense. The Gentile has turned away from following the natural revelation by God, which is written on our hearts and in our consciences. The Jew has turned away from the special revelation he has been given by God and toward apostasy. And we know that because the Jews turned away from what God gave them, right? He gave them the special revelation and they turned away from it, right? Everybody got that? Okay, and Paul explains that elsewhere. 
Paul has shown this in the chapters and verses leading up to this conclusion. So the verses we're looking at now must be taken in a general sense. It cannot be all-inclusive and absolute because he's already demonstrated that that is not true. Okay? Because the Jew has the natural revelation and also the special revelation, and yet they still turn from God, it shows the truly depraved nature of man. Everybody got that? They, were, they have the natural revelation that the Gentiles had, and the Gentiles were smart enough in Athens to make an altar to the unknown God. That's right. And they had uh, uh, philosophers that actually wrote things that Paul could quote in Scripture. In him we live and move and have our being. And he quotes another guy. And then back in, uh, later in Titus, he quotes Epimenides again. Right? He, he's quoting these people because they have something of value to say. Let me ask you something. Is the Quran true? No. Oh, no? Do you know what it says in the Quran? It says God is merciful. Is that true? Are you taking it as a whole? No, I'm just asking the question. Is that true? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? It came from the Bible. That's right. It came from the Bible. Just because the Quran is untrue, just because the it's on a whole, because it is not God's special revelation of Himself, does not mean that there isn't something that can be valued right. from it. Well, Just like Edgar Allan Poe. Wait, let me finish. Edgar Allan Poe will write things that have validity. It, they can be true. Just because not everything he says is true, he writes things that are true. We have to be careful when we ascribe something as completely false just because it comes from a false source. Adult can make a true statement. Right? So we have to be careful when the Proverbs are filled with this. The Proverbs go through this again and again, saying that there is truth here, but be careful here, etc., etc. Okay? So that's what we... Go ahead now. I, no, what I was going to say is that the best lies have a thread of truth through. That's right. So when the devil tempted uh, Adam and Eve and when he tempted Jesus, he told truth in his words. He just manipulated it. So they twisted it. That's right. So we have to be careful when we're looking at things like this, and we have to understand that, that just because a source is bad doesn't mean that the, something true can't come out of that source. We do that all. Uh, liberals are, are famous for it, but even you know people on the other side do do this. They t- yes. You mean, like, there, there were some days when Ted Bundy did a good deed. That's right. Opened the door for a, wid- a widow. That's right. He picked up someone's groceries that fell. I mean, there were days that Ted Bundy That's right. did good things. That's but. absolutely right. So we have to be careful about ascribing complete evil because there is no such thing as complete evil. If there was, then it, it wouldn't exist, okay? I, I, I went through that a while ago, and I, we'll get off on a long tangent. I don't want to do that. But if something is completely evil, if there is no good in it at all, then it can't exist because evil is the lack of something good. Okay, Satan was created by God, and therefore there has to be good in Satan. But he was, he was chose his fate at the very beginning. I'll just really quickly get through this. They are of eternal beings. They have, they are not eternal. They have a beginning, but they have no end, and they are what is called fully actuated potential. They have no potential to change. Everything that is potential about a angel is. It will never change, whereas man is progressively actuating potential. I know I've said this before, but I want you to remember that, okay? The devil has to have good attributes in him because he was created by God. He was fully actuated, but he is evil. He's the father of lies, etc., 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 okay? However, he's not completely evil because if he was, then God created something completely evil. That's not the case. But we'll go on. We can talk about that in detail later. I want to get done with this, this uh, verse here. Um, 
Uh, so both Jew and Gentile together have together become unprofitable, according to Paul. That's what he says there. All right, the Greek of this word is echriothesan. Um, it has been variously translated as worthless, useless, completely useless, unprofitable, rejected, rotten to the core, corrupt, etc. The word which it stems from in the Hebrew has the idea of something which is offensive or putrid. Okay? The corresponding word in Arabic is used to describe sour milk. If you know how bad sour milk is, there you go. In man, it is the state of moral impurity which is vile and degraded. Because of these things, the result is that there is none who does good, no, not one, according to Paul. As noted in the previous verse, care has to be exercised. The portion of the psalm being quoted is specifically speaking of the atheist. atheist. Thank you. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It would be contradictory to Scripture, even in Paul's writings, and yes, even the book of Romans and the very thoughts which he is presenting to apply this to all people in an absolute sense. For example, in Romans 2, 14 and 15, Paul shows that there are Gentiles who by nature do the things in the law, right? So you can, it can't be an all-inclusive statement. It cannot be. He then explains this and other notable traits throughout the rest of chapter 2. This must, by definition, be considered as good. If you're doing something which is in the law by nature, it's got to be good, right? So Paul is clearly not saying, as Calvinists claim of these verses, that man is entirely incapable of doing good or seeking after God. Rather, this is the general, not absolute, tendency of man. <coughs> Having said this, when Paul writes that there is none who does good, no, not one, it is not at all contradictory. The sin in man, both inherited from Adam and committed personally, places a barrier between God and man. It is impossible for man to please God unless the sin is dealt with first. And so truly, there is none who does good, no, not one, in the sense of our relationship with God. Everybody got that? Yep. Okay. Making the leap from not being good to not being capable of doing good is a, I said it before, a category mistake. There you go. There may be nothing good in us. But this does not mean that we cannot see the good in God or in his revelation of himself, either natural or special, and pursue it. Okay? We see the good in him, and we either choose or reject that good. The guy that doesn't have scripture, he's out in the jungle, and he sees the handiwork of God, can pursue the natural revelation of God to some degree. As I said before, the Sandwich Islands... These people were pagans, they had altars, they had all of their, their false gods, and then somebody came along and he said, there is a God out there. And they started to seek after this God, not knowing who he was, having no scripture at all, and then a missionary came and they said, we've been waiting for you. We knew that you were there. We knew that there was a true God and we have gotten rid of all of our idols and we're just waiting to hear the news. I read that from Albert Barnes and I said, wow, can you imagine that and telling that to a Calvinist? Oh, that's not true. Hey, man, they were ready for him. They were ready for the good news of Jesus Christ because they understood. Somebody walked outside and said, look, there's this beauty in the heavens. It had to come from somewhere. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. No, not one. Cannot be in the absolute sense. But it can be from God's perspective. They're all corrupt. They're all bad. But you see what I'm saying? You can pursue after the good. Okay, so, um, uh, okay, they pursue it. We see the good in him, we either choose or reject that. 
It is the confused soul who says that man has free will to commit evil, but denies the free will to pursue what is good, even if erringly. Because Calvinists don't deny that you do evil. They don't deny that you have free will to commit evil, but they do deny that you have the free will to do good. That's completely confused. That is completely confused. A little life application and we're just done. Okay, ideas, concepts, biblical truths, evaluations of man's relationship with God and so on, all have individual categories which must be kept separate and distinct. When we take one concept from the Bible and inappropriately apply it to another or over another, our thinking on what is biblically correct becomes skewed. Okay, if you take it and you say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this or I'm going to put it over this over here, you're thinking about the Bible is skewed. You keep your boxes straight, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you say, I understand that God is doing something in Jesus, you shouldn't make these category mistakes. It's when you take your eyes off of the Lord and you start getting into these theological discussions about your own depraved state, all of a sudden you start saying, well, I, you know, no. He gave us Jesus so that we can pursue him. It's not the other way around. Go ahead. Okay, if, if the Calvinist was right, what was the point of Jesus? That's right. That's what I just said. It's, what was the point of Jesus if like, Calvinist... Okay, so it's like you're chosen. It's like, you know, you get your assignment, boom, you're off to heaven. Well, what he would say, what he would say about that, and I'm talking about R.C. Sproul because I've listened to him so many times, he would say that we still need Joseph, Jesus for our atonement, okay? Because we're sinful and we need to be atoned for for sin because remember right, right, those, right, those right. things there. So he would say that you still need it, okay? No doubt about that. But then you could get into the Mary argument of the Catholics where they say God kept them, her, out of sin. Right. Well, if he could do that for her, then he can do it for anybody. Right. No need for Jesus. Catholics are right? Calvinists. So. Well, Catholics are Calvinists. But either way, it's a skewed way of thinking it. Right. They're both it, skewed ways of looking at the world. You have to say, why has God sent Jesus? Why has he given us scripture? Why has he given us these stories in scripture which clearly point to this instead of this? Okay? A little bit, little bit. Uh, uh, I know, uh, hang on one sec, a little bit um, uh, excited today, but for two reasons. First, the guy that came in and I almost, you know, but secondly, I get real passionate about this because it is so flawed when somebody says something and they teach it to people, and then it gets perpetrated. And how many times do we have this conversation during mission work? <laughs> week after week, Every you're frustrated, week. I'm frustrated, because these people will not simply take the time to think through an issue which is so basic. It is so basic. You have to teach this into somebody. You would never, never get this on your own out of the Bible. Never. Okay? It's something that you have to have actually taught into you, or you have to think yourself into it, because whatever reason. Go ahead. Well, just a comment about the, the pride issue right. that um, the scripture says, you know, don't lean on your own understanding. Mm -hmm. That's right. Don't lean on your own understanding. Instead, uh, something the Lord in all your ways, trust, can, trust in the Lord in all your ways. And that's right. Yeah, and we, can't, we can't be too confident in our own reasoning and our own. Ever. Because if, if, if we think something, somebody else thinks something else. We need to be humble enough to just say, God, help me. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's right. And uh, one of the, the, the pride thing always comes in. You know, it, it can come into any one of us anytime. Mm -hmm. And the one thing about understanding theology, whether it's right or wrong, when you have a greater understanding of theology than somebody else, 
it's natural for you to start to get prideful mm -hmm. over that and to start arguing your position. It, it's natural, and you have to keep drawing back off of that. It's very hard to not do that because you know you're passionate about what you believe. Whether you believe incorrectly or you believe correctly, you're normally passionate about it. I can testify to that with that meeting with Gordon four or five years ago. They were very passionate about what they believed, but they were completely wrong in what they believed, and they still are. They're still following the wrong path. So, and of course, I'm not going to give an inch on what I believe, and so you've got this impasse. But they're, they're, you know, that's what happens. So we have to be careful not to let pride step in. And when it does, we have to check ourselves on that. Anyway, let's have a prayer and we'll, we'll go on. Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for today's class, and we thank you that we got through it without an incident even before the class began because it was a little bit uh, dicey there for a moment. And uh, say a prayer for that guy that maybe he'll come to find you and... Uh, not whatever he was uh, going on in his head at the time. We would certainly pray for him. And um, there are people here today that need prayer, specific prayers for health, people that have uh, specific prayers for uh, guidance in their life that we would raise up. And um, also there are people that are waiting to find out the, uh, the status of family members that are sick and uh, maybe going to be uh, not with us soon, and they need to make decisions as well. And, uh, and so, Lord... I would ask that you would be with each one of them and help them to make the right decisions and uh, help them through their physical ailments and their trials and whatever else that anybody's facing, whether they're listening now or later, that you would be with them and help them to just keep their eyes fixed on you and to be anxious for nothing. We're asked to be anxious for nothing, and what a hard thing to do. But we can do it if we know that you already know the end and that the end is assured for us. If we can hold on to that, then we have no reason to be anxious. So help us to do that, Lord to put our faith and our trust in your capable hands and to leave it there and not to uh, let the world bring us down. And we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Be drunk. Uh, I don't know if he was drunk or not, but he sure was vulgar. I mean, what he said was really... Let me, let me back this up here, uh, break. Okay. All right, now push that. Oops, not that one. Push that one, and then we'll say goodbye. We love you all. Have a wonderful week. Take care. Oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, man. Wow. okay there? I know it doesn't matter. It, I, I was so worried. I saw you taking off your jacket. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't need to.